Welcome to Booked, a podcast from HarperCollins. Catherine Mayer is a journalist, a best-selling author and a former president of the Foreign Press Association in London. And in March 2015, she accidentally co-founded a political party at the Women of the World Festival, in the bar to be precise. Since that night at the South Bank Centre, Catherine has watched the Women's Equality Party grow from an idea to a vibrant political force across the UK. She is now its president. In her new book, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Catherine blends illuminating accounts of the process of forming the Women's Equality Party with global research and wide-ranging interviews to tackle some of the biggest questions of our age. Gender equality is good for everyone, so why are women everywhere at best second-class citizens? Why are fewer than 10% of the world's leaders female? And what will it take to reach gender equality? Attack of the 50-Foot Woman offers a tantalising preview of a gender-equal future that could be ours, and it's available to buy in hardback, ebook, and audio. It's a brilliant, original and exhilarating book, and Catherine takes us on a journey through global issues and debates impacting every one of us. To give you a taster, here's Catherine explaining why she founded the party and wrote the book as she talks to Tanya Moody, an award-winning actor and founding member of the Women's Equality Party, and Hartla Gunnarsdottir, a former advisor to the Icelandic government and head of policy and partnership for the Women's Equality Party. Their lively conversation covers topics including intersectionality, religion, the sex industry, what a gender-equal world would look like, and asks, can we achieve equality in our lifetime? My name's Catherine Mayer. I'm the author of Attack of the 50-Foot Women, and I'm the co-founder of the Women's Equality Party. I explain in the book why I founded the party, but the very short version is there wasn't a party that put gender equality front and centre, and it is, to me, the biggest single lack in, in the mainstream parties, and this is why I felt the need to create my own party. My name is Hatla Gunnarsdottir, uh, and I am head of policy and partnerships for the Women's Equality Party. I joined originally by accident, uh, <laughs> or I participated in one of the first meetings, and after that there was no turning back. I got more and more involved until I just started working for the party. I'm a part of it, and I've dedicated this much of my time and life and thinking to it because I think that there are very simple things that we can change here in the UK that will make the life much better for women and men across the United Kingdom. But also, if we would fix that here, we would have such a great global impact because the UK is in such a position in the world that it could really change the world. Hi, I'm Tanya Moody, and I'm an actor and a fledgling political activist and a mum. I can tell you why I joined the Women's Equality Party. I can't maybe tell you why you should, necessarily. But I missed that Women of the World Festival where the idea was brought forward by Catherine because I was working that day. I'd been at the one the previous year. And when I found out that that had happened, that you'd had that idea, I was really annoyed that I'd missed that day because I thought there's no way a feminist party is going to start without me being involved because (laughs) I was really worried that whatever brand of feminism that was being discussed wouldn't look at intersectionality. And I was like, I want to put myself in there somewhere so that if I felt that anyone was veering away from that or speaking about solely white feminism or solely middle class feminism, I could stick my beak in 
and stop proceedings and say, wait a minute. So it was more that I could <laughs> be annoying, really, than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> but so far, I've just been learning so much and meeting extraordinary people. Okay, Catherine, why did you write Attack of the 50-Foot Women? There was a moment when I was advocating for gender equality on the doorstep on behalf of the Women's Equality Party. And I realised that although I could answer questions about why we had the policies that we had or what our short-term goals were, mm -hmm. it was much harder to explain to people what the end game was. What mm -hmm. does gender equality look like? And of course, the reason that it's hard to explain that is because there is nowhere in the world that is gender equal. And so I, that started a thought process. What does it look like? What do we know about the impact of the things we're advocating for? What kind of world would they create? But I also felt it was really important to ask another question, which is why at this point in time are we so far from gender mm -hmm. equality, given that all the accepted wisdom speaks to the benefits not only for women, but for everyone of gender equality. You know, there's any number of studies that talk about the economic benefits. There are so many social benefits. So what are the barriers and how do we overcome them? So, you know, it's not really lacking ambition, but I needed to try and answer all of those questions. And who do you want to read it? I want everyone to read it because... Again, one of the issues around advocacy for gender equality is people have this habit, a very dismissive habit of talking about women's issues as if the things that happen to women don't impact the entire population. And also because there is a truth that is far too often overlooked, which is that feminism isn't just for women, but again, for everyone and that most men would be the beneficiaries too. Is there a message that you want people to take away? The message is the same message that when I first proposed the Women's Equality Party and was coming up with a slogan for the party that I wrote on the back of the napkin, and it's because equality is better for everyone. I really do believe that with a very slight tweak. It is true that there is a tiny percentage of mega rich people who hold most of the power in some way who might have to give up something. But for most people, greater gender equality is a win-win situation. And why did you choose the title Attack of the 50-Foot Women? There is a 1958 movie, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which I love in the way that one loves terrible B-movies. It is a classic for its time. It talks about how horrifying women are when they become unleashed and empowered. And this is a, a story about a wronged wife who has an encounter, as you do, with a space alien and mm -hmm. goes on the rampage <laughs> and grows to, well, sorry, grows to 50 foot and then goes on the rampage and, you know, it, and kills people. So I thought it was a, a kind of nice image for this terror of what the power of women unleashed looks like. And it's also interesting in terms of changing perspectives on women because the film was remade in the 1990s starring Daryl Hannah. And at that point, it becomes a parable of female empowerment and gets a happy ending. It's actually also a dreadful movie, by the way. 
And I love, I really love the film poster for the original 1958 version. And we have, to my great delight, been able to rework that film poster for the cover of the book. So one of the, the questions I tried to address in the book and not just answer it myself, but ask other people is what did they think the gender equal world would look like? I, I called it equalia. So can I turn the tables and ask a question here myself, which is if you, Tanya, think of a gender equal world, what image does that evoke for you? What do you think of? Well, firstly, when I hear Equalia and starting to read about it in your book, actually my concept of it moved beyond gender. I think the more that I read, it was, wasn't just about gender, it was about how we can support all areas of society, especially looking out for those who are the most vulnerable, who are the weakest, who are the most disadvantaged. So actually, Equalia to me was about a society that doesn't just allow those who are the most capable or the wealthiest or the strongest or the healthiest to move forward uninhibited by others who can't move as quickly. Mm -hmm. So there was a sense of even if society or legislation or changes in government move forward at a slower pace, they move forward with the greatest inclusivity. So including the elderly, including children, including women, including students, including people who stay at home, including the disabled. So my concept of equality actually, I think, for me, in my head, if you start working, looking at gender, it has to spin outwards like that. Well, one of the questions for me, when we started talking about a party that had as its core aim gender equality, mm. was whether it would bring other kinds of equality. Mm -hmm. So whether a society that was more gender equal would also be more equal in terms of the way it dealt with all of its citizens mm -hmm. in all of those areas that mm -hmm. you talked about and, you know, in terms of race, in terms of mm -hmm. economic, socioeconomic mm -hmm. group, all of those issues. And mm -hmm. that's something that in the book I work through because there is not a simple answer to that mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. But I do, in the end, feel that if you remove the biggest or one of the biggest structural inequalities of mm -hmm. all, it must make it easier to tackle other areas of inequality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hadler is here and Hadler of course comes from Iceland, the country that is the world's closest to Equalia but still quite a long way from it. So how do you imagine Equalia to be? Yeah, when you were speaking I thought of this poster where this is like image of or like cartoon image of it's like a monkey and an elephant and mm -hmm. a parrot and a goldfish and like a lion and maybe a couple of other animals. And then someone says to be completely fair, we're going to put all of you through the same test, which is to run up this tree, climb up this tree as fast as you can. This image really illustrates the difference between focusing on equality and like equality for the law and so on, and then focusing on equal opportunities. And that's why I agree with Tanya that it's not about moving one individual or like a small group of individuals forward. It's, it's moving the entire society forward. Mm -hmm. I think it's this idea of equal opportunities where your gender doesn't limit your opportunities and doesn't decide for you 
where you go or what you do or what you're allowed to like or what sports you're allowed to play and if you are involved in decision making in the country that you live in or not. Mm -hmm. And then the same goes for that your race doesn't define that, that mm -hmm. your uh, ability or disability doesn't define that or sexuality and so on. And I think uh, and I think we can get there because all of those are social constructs. We're basically trying to change how we think. We're not changing the way that water runs to the sea or right? yeah. we're not trying to make any huge natural changes. We're just trying to change the way we mm -hmm. think and the way we the way we treat each other based on stereotypes and their prejudice and so mm -hmm. on. Which was, of course, for me, the very big takeaway from Iceland was that the reason Iceland has made the strides it has towards gender equality is because of hearts and minds being changed in a very dramatic way. And one of the key drivers of that was the Women's Day Off in 1975. Mm -hmm. You're too young to remember that. <laughs> I'm too young to remember, but I did participate in the other Women's Days Off in 2005 and 2010, which were really big as well. If you think about and you start understanding structural oppression based on your gender or based on your race or whatever else it is, it's hard to ignore the understanding of other structural inequalities. Mm -hmm. If we look at like some of those refugee communities, if you look at the people from uh, Western Sahara mm -hmm. who have lived in refugee camps in Algeria for 40 years, I think, mm -hmm. they take a lot of pride in gender equality within the camp. So you can say about some Kurdish uh, minorities and other groups that are fighting oppression, mm -hmm. and then they start taking pride in not also being oppressive in their own back garden. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the constant challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we are changing the way we think, mm -hmm. we're not only looking critically at the world structures, we're also looking mm -hmm. critically at ourselves and mm -hmm. thinking like, what am I doing and how am I contributing to this structural oppression, whether I'm a victim of it or maybe the oppressor, uh, depending on which hat I have on. So I think that's the greatest challenge. And I think the better we become at these conversations, the closer we get to equality. Can I just dispute, though, that Iceland, I've never visited Iceland, but just the idea that Iceland is potentially the most like this concept of equalia. Because from what I know of Iceland, culturally, it's a bit monochromatic, let's yes. say. So if, if in a place where, okay, so you've had an opportunity through recent history to challenge structural inequalities in terms of gender, and you've had great strides ahead, but in a sense, so what would happen? So me as a black woman, when I hear that and I go, well, have you ever had to face cultures that are there that are visually different? And have people ever sort of bucked up against that or been like, hang on a second, this is a bridge too far. Are we, you know, we're, now we're not the same. No, we won't take that, you know, because I've been in a lot of places in the world where the moment I walk off the plane, I'm told, no, you're not wanted here. We, you know, we haven't had that kind of cultural sort of integration and we don't want it because it's new and it's different and it's other. So is Iceland really close to equality if you never actually had to face that as a country? No, <laughs> but the thing is that we, I mean, we're basically all related and most of us are just about as white as I am. Mm -hmm. And we place a lot of emphasis on our culture and particularly on our language. Mm -hmm. So I would think in Iceland, like the gateway to the society more so then the color of your skin is actually if you're able to speak the language or not, because that changes everything for you, because it opens the doors to jobs and to like just to being a part of the community. Whereas if you don't, it, it makes it really hard. Mm -hmm. 
So you can never use Iceland as an example of a place that has mastered equality. Like women in Iceland are raped about as often as women in the UK. And, and there's a lot of segregation in jobs. But I, I make that point in the book about Iceland. Because of where it lies geographically, mm. immigration has been historically quite easy to control, but mm. it has controlled it beyond the point where that seemed to me necessary as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's taken a remarkably small number of immigrants. There are lots of things about Iceland that mean that there are great lessons you can learn from the good things that they've done, but they're not nearly so easily applicable to more complex societies, mm -hmm. precisely because it lacks that yeah. diversity. Mm. But at the same time, you have to start somewhere. Yes. Uh, and I think if you pick the lessons learned from there and then lessons learned from other places in the world, then you can come up with some tools that help us move forward. I mean, there's no place in the world that's perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that moves actually really smoothly on to the next question for all of us. If we could change one thing in the UK tomorrow, what would it be? Catherine? Well, when we started the Women's Equality Party, we took six core objectives mm -hmm. because very much the feeling was you can't really make enough change if you have one thing because it's undermined by other areas. So mm -hmm. our core object, the original core objectives were equal representation, equal pay, equality through in, in education, equal treatment by and in the media, mm -hmm. shared opportunities and responsibilities in caregiving, and an end to violence against women. Mm -hmm. And at our first party conference, we added a seventh objective, which was equal health. I think that those are really all essential. So if I was allowed to change all seven of them, I'd change all seven of them and mm -hmm. we would be equalier or close to it. But if I had to pick one that was the priority, I think it's the caregiving. I think that the fact that childcare is still seen so much as primarily women's work mm -hmm. and there are so many unpaid caregiving things that women do that impact the way in which they are able to be economically active. Mm -hmm. And it also just impacts cultural attitudes mm -hmm. to gender in such profound ways that I think that if we could even up caregiving and value caregiving properly, mm -hmm. that that would make a huge difference. Okay. And Hathla? Yeah, I mean, I could echo that. Uh, I would say if there's one single thing I would like to change in the UK, it's childcare. I think that is the simplest way of making a huge difference on gender equality in the UK. I have noticed that parents here and across the United Kingdom, they seem to take this for given that things have to be the way they are, mm -hmm. but they don't. Uh, the UK is lagging behind most of its neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be this expensive. Mm -hmm. There is both uh, a, like a gender equality case for it, a children's well-being case for it, mm -hmm. and there is a there is an economic case for it, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. like huge investment in universal affordable childcare for everybody. Mm -hmm. So shifting the focus from from concentrating only on the poorest and saying mm -hmm. we need to build up a system that works for all of us, mm -hmm. I think that would make the biggest difference of all the changes that we're proposing. Mm -hmm. And then adding to that, I would say the shared parental leave that is a part of our our proposal. And I want to highlight that I don't have children. So this is not out of something that I have experienced personally. Mm -hmm. It's just looking at the society and how it functions and seeing the gaps. I yeah. think this is what would make the whole difference both for, uh, for women and men and for people yeah. of all genders. Yeah. And people look at it and think of these things as expensive. 
but that's because they don't look at the economic benefits. And again, every study where you look at the increased participation of women in the workforce, mm -hmm. it adds so much to the economy, to economic growth, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it very, very quickly pays for itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so since both of you have chosen caregiving, aspects <laughs> of caregiving, I'm going to choose something totally different. Yep. I'm going to say I would, if I had a magic wand and I was boss of the UK, I would make it impossible to charge for education. So every single school and all education would be free. And so the wealthiest would intermingle with the poorest in the schools. And hopefully, this is my theory. Okay, this is a hypothesis. I don't, I don't know if it would work. <laughs> they'll go into like little ghettos and they. <laughs> but anyway, the wealthiest would have to intermingle with the poorest, and the standard of education it would all have to be standardised in terms of quality. So you wouldn't, it wouldn't be like I can pay. Ego, my child is going to get the highest standard of education. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to be the same, and then that way, the theory is, as we grow up, people who are very wealthy can easily work and converse and coexist with people who are very poor and vice versa and will have established fundamental understanding and respect from a young age because we all have been educated together and the standards would have increased. And hopefully that will plant the seeds for other thoughts and ideas and practices around equality on a sort of rolling way from a fundamental level. I would add to that the importance of gender, of a, an understanding of gender within that system, mm -hmm. because at the moment the education system reinforces gender differences yes. at every turn mm -hmm. by, in so many different ways, but the obvious way is by funneling boys into typically boys' subjects and yes. girls away from STEM subjects yes. to the detriment of both. Mm -hmm. and. Again, this is where you can look at Iceland and see good things they're doing. When I was in Iceland, I went to a school, one of a series of schools there, where they're actually practicing a form of education that is meant to offset the kind of gender stereotyping that the kids mm -hmm. are encountering in the outside world mm -hmm. and helping them open up to ideas of what they might be mm -hmm. and to define for themselves what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. But it's a very interesting form of education, a kind of gender neutral education. Mm -hmm. I find this really interesting because I think Iceland is, does not have the same rooted class system as the UK has. Iceland has been described as a class-free society, which is, mm -hmm. of course, bullshit, But because mm -hmm. <laughs> no society is. Mm -hmm. But the difference between the people at the bottom and people at the top is uh, that the distance between them is much shorter than you'd find here. I would still say that back there, I would interact with a more diverse group of people mm -hmm. and from different socioeconomic backgrounds mm -hmm. than I do here mm -hmm. because of the education system. Yeah. Because we all go to the same schools. Yeah. So I think that makes a huge difference in terms of how you build up societies and communities. And do you both think that we can achieve equality in our lifetimes? Yes. Yes. It's going to be really, really hard. And gender equality, you know, I'm mm -hmm. not, as, as I said before, I'm not assuming gender equality absolutely instantly solves other problems. It's just mm. something that makes it more obvious what those other structural problems are and maybe gives you ways to tackle them. But I think that there are ways, and in the book I propose a fast route to gender equality. Mm -hmm. This is part of the purpose of the book, is to show people that faster, speeded up route. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You both said yes. Because as well, you know, the question ended with in my lifetime. Mm. And I feel like that's what I'm 
aiming for in my actions and my thoughts and my words and my deeds and my hopes. But I feel like I can't separate gender equality from racial equality as well, obviously, because it's just in me. And I don't, I think we're a long way off from the perception of white supremacy as being the standard, not just amongst, like for everybody, as being the gold standard. I think it's so deeply ingrained and interwoven with the with global economic system. So if that can't be redressed, then I don't see, I, I can't separate that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Because in my head, I just, it's like, okay, so we have gender equality for which women, you know, and which others on the kind of intersectional quilt are excluded from that. I find it hard, and I know probably you do touch upon intersectionality in your book, but I find it hard to yeah. unpick those things. Well, I hope I hope I do more than touch on it because mm-hmm. I think it's you know it's utterly core to the feminism I believe in, mm-hmm. and it's a point I actually make early on, but something that we wrestled with at the Women's Equality Party as mm-hmm. well, hugely, is you can't have gender equality if your idea of gender equality is just gender equality for some of the gender Mm -hmm. if your idea is to just take the structures that already exist at the concentration of privilege and recreate it within a new paradigm Mm -hmm. that's not something that we're interested in Mm -hmm. you know and so that's why i say i don't think that in creating gender equality you solve any of the other things that intersect with gender to Mm -hmm. add to structural disadvantage. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you make more accessible the ways of tackling those. It's such a tough area. And it's also a tough area for white feminists. You know, for me, trying to figure out how to use my voice and how to also create platforms and stand aside has been a really big Mm-hmm. and is an on is an ongoing issue you know mm-hmm, it's funny mm-hmm. writing writing a book as a white feminist you sort of feel like well i am doing this because i want to move things on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i also want to move things on um not for people who look and sound like me and mm-hmm. are as privileged as me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so how do i create the space how do i create the platforms for other people and then mm-hmm. get the hell out of the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the the question you know, the single thing that one could change, you know, the all these mind games are very interesting. And, and I have a chapter in the book that deals with religion. And I am not a religious person. And having looked at the outcomes of religion for women, there is a direct correlation between the religiosity of a state and poor outcomes for women. And so to me, as somebody who's not religious, one of the things that you would say is, one of the quickest routes to gender equality would be to do away with religion. Mm -hmm. But obviously, for people of faith, that isn't an option. Mm -hmm. So then one of the things you have to figure out what to do is how to work with religion and how religion also changes within the context of a culture. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid Iceland is very interesting here because Iceland has a church that um, has feminist theologians in it. Mm -hmm. Because if you get a culture to a point where gender equality is seen as a positive good and where the aim of gender equality is shared right the way across all of the genders in that society, Mm -hmm. then even the religion takes on that coloration and furthers it rather than standing Mm -hmm. in the way of it. 
So that sort of answers the question of, you know, what, if you could change one thing tomorrow in the world, mm -hmm. would that be it then in a nutshell? Yeah, I mean, if I could recreate the world to be a more equal place, a mm. very good starting point would be to do away with religions because they enshrine patriarchal notions mm -hmm. and impact mm -hmm. poorly on female populations, mm -hmm. even though lots of individual religious people and individual religions in certain circumstances mm -hmm. do good things. So mm -hmm. it's not me going, religion is bad. It's me going, mm -hmm. religion as a whole is bad for women. And Hatla? I would, if I could change one thing in the world, I would mm. end the sex trade. It's both a cause and a consequence of gender inequality and of racial inequality and of inequalities between the, the global south and, and the global north, if you like. Mm. And I think if we could end that, if I could just sign a paper here and say I've ended the sex trade, mm. I think we would uh, make such a big difference and we would free so many people from fear and terror and violence and torture oh gosh, yes. just in one go. So I have met women who have said to me that they have worked in the sex trade because they felt it was empowering to them. These are women who studied, um, you know, feminism at university, did degrees, and then they entered into the sex trade after doing degrees and stuff. And they said to me, I felt empowered. What would you say to them? To them, I would probably say, fine, I respect your choices mm -hmm. and I respect your experiences. In a more political conversation and mm -hmm. a policy-making conversation, I would want to look at the structures and at the overall image of what is going on mm -hmm. rather than individual experiences. And even though feminism has brought that into policymaking, that individual experiences should feed into policymaking, mm -hmm. it is still very important to look at the structures that are at play. And if you look at the global sex trade, anyone who looks at the global sex trade and what it looks like does not turn away from that and saying like, oh, we should continue this because it's very healthy for a few people mm -hmm. who, who, as you probably described, are the more privileged. There are a few issues that divide feminism very, very deeply. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've already touched on the very obvious one of race. Mm -hmm. The whole issue about whether you decriminalize the sex industry and regulate it or whether you have some form of the Nordic model where you criminalize the purchase of sex mm -hmm. but decriminalize sex work mm -hmm. is one of the, the hugely divisive issues in feminism and it was very interesting for me because I came to this from a very different perspective to Hadler. I came to this as somebody who was instinctively just in favor of decriminalizing and protecting sex workers. And that was sort of the beginning and end of my analysis here. And there's a whole chapter in the book that I devote to this. I'm still, I'm still really wrestling with this subject area mm -hmm. because I think it is so profound and it goes to so many things in our culture. And I think it's so difficult. I don't think there is a perfect solution, by the way. I agree with Hadler. If one could get rid of it, at a stroke, but if in getting rid of it at a stroke, that meant no hardship to people who were already involved in it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't mean a kind of puritanical denial of sex. I mean, what's wrong with the sex industry at the moment is that the people who are in it are very many of them are there because they've been trafficked into it or they're being exploited. But it's also in terms of the people outside it, in terms of the perception of women more generally. It goes to a culture that sees women as commodities and commodifies women's bodies and women's sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so 
in the end, what you're trying to do is rebalance that culture mm -hmm. to acknowledge women's sexuality, to um, empower all of those women, to give women the economic power so that they are not at the mercy of the, the traffickers, all of those things. It's not saying that, um, well, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't mean that the idea that there's a transaction involved is necessarily wrong. It's the context in which it occurs mm -hmm. that makes it so damaging. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to imagine how you redress that. Mm -hmm. Okay. In politics, who do you most admire, Hatla? Well, I have to say Sophie Walker, the leader of the Women's Equality Party, mm -hmm. goes without saying. Someone who I have seen develop as a politician mm -hmm. who came into politics with no background in it, mm -hmm. but with a heart and with an experience as a woman and as a previously single mother, as a mother of a disabled child, and brought all those experiences into the work that she does and does it in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been a great privilege to watch her grow and I think she could really lead the UK out of all the different political crises mm -hmm. that we're facing now. Mm -hmm. What about you, Catherine? Well, I would have obviously said Sophie, but since Hadler said Sophie, I'm going to say my ongoing and unexpected heroine, um, Angela Merkel. She was not an obvious heroine for me. I have traditionally been a left-leaning voter. She's from a party of the right. But she has in power been increasingly interesting and eventually also admirable very unshowy. She's not at all like so many politicians. She's not about grandstanding or bathing in the limelight. Mm -hmm. um, but what she has been about is the very careful and um, some think infuriatingly slow use of power. But then when the moment came, when the refugee crisis was there, she used all that accrued power and support and popularity that she had to do something really dramatic to actually make that gesture of welcome to refugees at the point where it was needed. And I just think that's one of the great political moments of my lifetime. Mm -hmm.